electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour on The Exchange. Stocks are rising with 1% gains across the board. If my eyes don't deceive me, the NASDAQ is leading the way, even as yields surge higher once again. The 30-year topping 3%, the 10-year getting pretty darn close to that level. Is the rally in stocks just a head fake here or not? We have both sides of that debate. Plus, masks now optional on planes. But this win for the airline comes as yet another one has to trim its peak season flight schedule and as COVID cases have ticked back up again. And the CEO of Lockheed Martin joins us to talk earnings, supply chain, and the company's talks with the Pentagon on sending weapons to Ukraine. But we begin with stocks, and Dom Chu has those key numbers. Your eyes do not deceive you because it is a pretty decent rally right now. It wasn't this way earlier on. It was more mixed around the opening bell, but we are towards those session highs. The Dow Industrial is just about 400 points to the upside here, up 1%, 34,812 the last trade there. The S&P 500, 4447, 55 handles to the upside, about one and a quarter percent gain there. And the Nasdaq Composite, 13,574, 242 points to the upside. To Kelly's point, we've seen the Nasdaq now reverse course a little bit, maybe a bit of that kind of rotation trade coming back, 1.8% gains there. So the Nasdaq leading the way, technology and comm services, a big focus there. If you want to take a look at some of the big earnings-related stories today, take a look at the top two here. Johnson & Johnson up 3%. Travelers down by about 5.5%. Johnson & Johnson, one of the bigger contributors to the Dow's gains today. Travelers, though, the biggest detractor. You're getting roughly 40 to 50-point gains for Johnson & Johnson, that 400-point gain for the Dow. Meanwhile, Travelers takes off about 60 points with that 5% drop. Halliburton and Hasbro coming in as well there with earnings reports. Now, decently move here, but Halliburton, again, coming off some very near-term highs, so watch that. By the way, Johnson & Johnson and Travelers both up their dividend payments. And then the interest rate story is still front and center. There's still a lot of focus among not just the institutional side of the market, but also retail traders and investors as well in what's going to happen with rates. As Kelly mentioned, the 10-year above 2.9%, but let's focus on that 30-year long bond, 2.983%. Kelly, at one point we were over three. This is the highest level going all the way back to April of 2019. That's going to be key to watch. It's not necessarily that the 30-year long bond is one that kind of tracks to mortgage rates or anything else. But we want to focus on this notion that that long-term side of things is still ticking higher, despite the fact that the IMF has cut its global growth forecast. There are so many different things at play, but interest rates, they are heading higher. Cal, back over to you. Dom, thank you very much. And stocks are surprisingly unfazed by suggestions from the Fed's James Bullard last night that the Fed might hike by 75 basis points to fight inflation. Traders saying even that possibility already priced in. But one of my next guests does not believe that's the case and is revising her stock targets lower for the year. Joining me now, Mark Smith, the senior vice president and portfolio manager at Wells Fargo Advisors, and Ava Ados is chief operating officer and chief investment strategist at ER Shares. Welcome to both with you, both both of you, Ava. I think you're a little bit more cautious. So uh, explain where you see stocks headed from here. 
Yes, um, I think we're going to have a choppy rest of the year, and I think it's. Uh, I think analysts will start reassessing the estimates for the second half. The first, uh, the first half has already been reassessed down, but we will see the second half of the year, maybe the beginning of 2023, also getting reassessed. And I think that there's not a lot of surprise here with the Fed's comments. I, the surprise to me is that the rates are not there yet. Uh, are not there yet because if you if you see inflation running between eight to ten percent and the rates on the long term end haven't adjusted to that in the short term we have a lot of activity but between the five year and the thirty year the yield curve is about flat so what we think is going to happen is we'll see another adjustment on the yield curve another shift up vertical shift up that will better illustrate and reflect the reality with inflation not seeing, uh, showing signs of slowing down anytime soon. So you're looking at places like healthcare, uh, you know, basically pieces, places where people can't really pull back that much. I kind of have to keep spending. Uh, there's a couple of names that you like in that sector, RMD, EXEL. Mark, what about you? Big picture. How do you feel about the Fed's inflation fighting here, um, the way that rates are behaving, the fact that stocks, at least today, are holding up pretty well? Thanks for having me on again, Kelly. Uh, listen, I think at the end of the day, we've got to look at what has to happen. The Fed has to act, and they may have to act aggressively, according to what Bullard is saying. And so we should totally expect that there could be 50, 50 basis points, 75 basis point hikes, maybe not this time, but definitely next time. Um, I think Ukraine is giving them a little kind of cover here to, to slow things down. But um, the fact that Eight and a half percent inflation, a 40 year high. They've got to address that. So um, the issue is, it's for my clients is what do we do with that knowledge? We got to go on the financials. Uh, they're really the only sector that um, that benefits heavily by rising rates. And so you're seeing that if 75 basis points um, comes to pass, as Bullard suggested, that the financials are going to be the biggest beneficiary of this. And, get, and guess what? The valuation levels are great. There really are a sector that hasn't had these huge run-ups um, like tech. And so, so I think financials in a rise rate environment and based on the valuation is a good place to be. I see energy you would like here as well. Finergy, you know, that's the shorthand they call it in the market. Mark, are you concerned that these trades are crowded or if not, why not? I don't think the energy trade is crowded, to be quite frank, because guess what? The, one of the largest countries in the world, oh, billions of people, a lot of them are in lockdown right now. Once that comes out, this is probably going to this is going to create a tremendous amount of demand. And so energy has to go up if you have a lot more people spending it. So these lockdowns are really keeping energy prices, I think, at bay just for the time being. But get, but China is not staying locked down forever. You can best believe that. And maybe this is a place where you guys differ the most, Ava, because I, I sense your enthusiasm for financials and energy is is much smaller uh, that maybe you would even say it's a place to avoid right now. Well, energy is price inelastic, but we think a lot of it has been priced in already. So there's not a lot of movement from here, we believe. It's still a good place to be, but not the best. Healthcare to us is the most price inelastic of all sectors. You will always need healthcare, and you're not concerned about the prices. And when it comes to financials, what concerns me is we saw financial companies, institutions coming up lately. We saw Bank of America and JP Morgan, both of them are struggling with rising labor costs. They're struggling with the reduction of Russian trade. They're struggling with the, the fintechs taking business from them. And then you have the mortgage levels rising. And so that business is also going away. And we saw 
JP Morgan has in, uh, has an increase on their SGNA cost from last year of on a percentage basis of 1.3, uh, one out of three. So there's a huge increase. And then Bank of America also has a 25% increase uh, from last year's SGNA cost. So we see their SGNA costs rising significantly. And to me, that's a big concern. Yeah, 33% and 25% increases are massive, you know, um, and it has been a, a sore point. Mr. Smith, I'll give you the last word. Yeah, I'd say look at history. If, if rates are going to continue to go up, financials make more money. It's that simple. And so all these costs that you're referring to, I think you're looking in, a, in the rearview mirror and not uh, right ahead of you. And if you're looking ahead of you and rates are going higher, you're going to want to be with the banks. All right, David, now i got to give you just a quick last word. Uh, well, I, I agree with that, and um, com um, financial institutes are usually able to pass along um, rate increases, costs associated with rate increases to their customers. But to me, what's going on now with inflation and how the, the labor cost skyrocketing affects them is really concerning. However, I want to mention that we might see layoffs. Uh, we saw JP Morgan getting hit hard with their with their profits, so that there might be layoffs as uh, because of that, and that will be a mitigating effect on inflation and how that affects them. Yeah, and in some ways you're saying kind of the green light for financials comes if there's layoffs, which is, is kind of turning uh, things on its head for sure. We'll leave it there. That was enlightening. I loved it. Thank you both. Uh, Ava Ados, Mark Smith on financials, the markets, rates, and so much more. Quick programming note, Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic will be on Closing Bell today for an exclusive interview at 3 p.m. Eastern time. You definitely don't want to miss it. Meantime, the mask mandate on planes, trains, and other public transport is no more. A federal judge in Florida ruling that the CDC overstepped its authority and failed to adequately explain its reasons for the mandate. Here's a video posted to social media of passengers on one Delta flight in Atlanta applauding the news. On our Delta hub, it says mask now optional for employees, customers, following the White House. <laughs> Our Phil Lebeau is standing by with the latest from the airlines, while Meg Terrell has more on the fallout for the CDC here, especially as COVID cases rise once again. Phil, let's start with you. Kelly, almost every airline, in fact, every airline that I know of has said, look, we are not going to enforce a mask mandate any longer. So it's optional. And take a look at what we're talking about here. This has been a rough 14 months for all of these airlines. The TSA has dropped its enforcement of the mask mandate as well. And then it's, the, by the way, this is for mass transit in the United States. So you're also looking at a number of areas. Amtrak is also impacted by this. A number of the regional transportation authorities have also said, look, we're going to be dropping the mask requirement. And in practice, what we've seen from video at various airports around the country today is that most people have taken off the mask. Not everybody. Remember, it's optional. And there are some people who have decided I'm not comfortable with the environment when it comes to COVID-19. We're going to keep the mask on. One area where I think we're going to notice an impact, unruly passengers. And we should see, should see better behavior in the air. It has gotten a little bit better according to the FAA, but it's still not great. In terms of unruly passenger cases this year, more than 1,100 
the vast majority of these involve somebody being asked to put on a mask or they weren't wearing their mask, they pop off, then you know what happens next. The incident rate, however, it is declining. For the airlines, they have been lobbying for this for some time. So, you know, from their perspective, Kelly, this is great news. They believe that if you can make an environment where there's less friction, less uh, concern when you're flying, and less irritability with passengers, it's a better environment. What do the airlines think about this over the next couple of months? How much will it impact business? United reports its earnings after the bell tomorrow. We'll get some sense about whether or not they think this might impact future bookings. I'm not sure it's going to make a huge difference, but it certainly will make a more enjoyable flying experience for sure. And speaking of United, the CEO, Scott Kirby, will be on Fast Money tomorrow with more on the company's response tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Phil, let me ask you about Spirit, which today announced it's cutting some spring and summer flights to head off disruptions. And right. this is a stock that is at 25 bucks. Its 52-week high was 38, and its all-time high from 2015 was at 70. And this is with a takeover fight. Right. Well, look, they're cutting their schedule because if you look at their schedule now, compared to pre-pandemic, they've added more flights. So they have been very aggressive. All of the lower cost airlines have been very aggressive about adding back flights because there's been so much demand out there. At the same time, staffing is just not there. They're making the prudent decision, given the fact that we've seen some weather complications, especially down in Florida where they have a big footprint. They've decided, you know what, let's pull back the schedule just a little bit here so we don't run into a situation where we're overextended because that would be the worst case scenario. They want to avoid that happening. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Phil, thank you very much, our Phil LeBeau. We turn to Meg now. Where does this leave the CDC, especially as COVID cases have been rising once again? Meg Terrell with the latest. Meg? Well, Kelly, there's a broad question for the CDC and what the Biden administration does here. There are concerns expressed by some uh, that if the administration appeals this and really takes it up through higher courts, uh, that you could see sort of broader challenges to CDC's public health authorities even beyond the current situation that we're in. And we are in a situation where the CDC, of course, had just said we should keep that mandate in place on planes, trains, and other forms of transportation at least until early May because we are in a situation of uncertainty right now with a new variant that is driving at least cases higher. Uh, so we are seeing cases up more than 20% over the past two weeks across the United States, now to about 33,000 per day. Uh, but of course, when you look across the U.S., that's not even. You're seeing much bigger increases in some areas of the country, particularly in the Northeast. However, hospitalizations are near pandemic lows right now. Deaths have also come down. They are lagging indicators. Hospitalizations are rising in some parts of the country. You can see here the states in red, mostly in the Northeast again, are where you are starting to see increases in COVID hospitalizations as well. That could be driven by a new variant. We've been hearing about BA2. This, of course, is the newer form of Omicron that is more contagious than the previous form of Omicron. Now there is a new version of BA2 called BA.2.12.1, and I really hope that gets a better name if it sticks around. Unfortunately, it looks like it might be sticking around. It is gaining ground on BA2. You can see it in the blue there. Now 19% nationally of the cases that CDC is sequencing and really more predominant in the New York area. So the question right now is just what are we going to see going forward in terms of cases, severe disease? That is the big question. And you'll see that you know some places like New York's uh, MTA are keeping the mask mandate in place. Philly, of course, reinstating its mask mandate. On the local level, you might see that. But of course, bigger questions for the CDC. And what about the effectiveness of the vaccines? 
is we watch China and its response to the outbreak there. We look at the U.S. and try to figure out what portion of this has to do with literally having different vaccines, having different vaccination rates, being exposed to different versions of COVID, including the new numerically heavy one that you mentioned. And older people here have been getting their boosters. Younger kids still can't get the shot. But then we wonder if that shot would even be effective. What's the latest that we know? Well, we know that the vaccines work really well, particularly if you get boosted. And now there is that um, recommendation for certain groups, vulnerable groups and older people to consider getting a booster if it makes sense for them. The U.S. vaccines have held up better than the Chinese vaccines. Uh, We need to see data against this even more emerging version of Omicron to see how that looks. Um, But we are seeing really good protection against severe disease, even in kids where, you know, it looked like the protection from two doses for the 5 to 11 year olds wasn't great. The severe disease protection does look very strong. And so parents of kids under five, of course, waiting for more data from Pfizer and word from the FDA on Moderna's application for that group to potentially get protected. Absolutely. Meg, as always, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell with all the latest. Coming up, Lockheed Martin. The shares are up 30 percent this year. They're lower today after mixed quarterly results. But we will speak exclusively with the chairman and CEO of the country's top weapons maker. That's next. Plus, the return of earnings exchange. We have the action, the story, and the trade on three names about to report, including Netflix, of course. It's still down 50% from its highs. We'll tell you what Wall Street will be watching in these results. The exchange, back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. The war in Ukraine reigniting defense spend globally, which in turn is pushing the defense stocks higher. Shares of Lockheed Martin are up 30 percent this year. General Dynamics up 17 percent. Northrum, Raytheon adding more than 20 percent. And Lockheed reported an earnings beat, but a revenue miss today. Shares initially popped. Try and hold on to those gains down about 1 percent right now. Joining us right now is Lockheed Martin's chairman and CEO Jim Takelet with our very own Morgan Brennan. Welcome to you both, Morgan. Thanks, Kelly. And Jim, welcome to The Exchange. Thanks for being with us today. Sure. Good afternoon, Morgan. Hi, Kelly. So as Kelly just mentioned, it was a mixed quarter. Supply chain challenges have been in focus now for a number of quarters, and not just at Lockheed Martin, but really across the industry in general. Is it safe to say, given the fact that you're maintaining full year guidance, that the worst is now over? Uh, Yes, that's right, Morgan. So uh, we had a solid start to the first quarter of 2022 financially. 
Uh, we actually had margins higher than expected and cash flow higher than expected also. Uh, revenue is a little light uh, because of the, so the COVID impacts that you do uh, kind of refer to there. And what really is going on, uh, both in our suppliers' factories and in our own, is uh, starting with the suppliers, uh, you know, they uh, get cases either on or off the job. Uh, they then have to quarantine people from that plant or that office or that engineering facility. Uh, work doesn't get done. Components do not get then shipped to Lockheed Martin, where we have our plants and factories and offices, where we would then assemble those components and parts. Uh, and above all of that is, uh, unlike many industries, uh, our industry typically uh, bills and, and receives revenue on a progress methodology. In other words, it's a uh, payments periodically uh, on the way to having a completed product, not just when you complete the product and deliver it. So with those progress type payments, if you don't get the components in or you can't install them because your people aren't there in the factory, that actually reduces the revenue. It's a period issue here for us where we think, again, we can make it all up by the end of the year here okay. uh, and hold our guidance. So speaking to that guidance, uh, as your CFO, Jay Malavi, told me, the impact of the war in Ukraine is not factored into those numbers. And, and we've seen weapon systems like the Javelin missile that you make with Raytheon being shipped to Ukraine. Do you actually expect to see incremental sales? And would you expect to see that demand materialize this year? If so, where? Well, the stocks that are being depleted, uh, both in the U.S. Army and among our allies, are eventually going to have to be refilled, of course. And based on the threats that have emerged out of the Ukraine conflict, unfortunately, uh, we do think that overall demand for defensive weapons like Javelin and Thad and Pac-3 are going to increase broadly over time. Uh, those uh, uh, Revenue effects, again, will be in a longer cycle because even mm -hmm. if we were to get orders in this year, uh, we've got to get our supply chain ramped up. We've got to add some capacity, which we're already investing to do, by the way. Uh, and then the deliveries happen, you know, say 6, 12, 18 months down the road. So there should be some uplift, but uh, we don't necessarily uh, have it wired into our guidance for 2022. Yeah, so a matter of how quickly production can ramp. I mean... The world has definitely become a more dangerous place in recent months. How would you assess the geopolitical landscape, especially since defense spending is now globally poised to move more meaningfully higher? Well, I think in a nutshell, unfortunately, the world has changed. Uh, with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, it's been really the first uh, major global power um, invasion of a neighboring country to gain territory. Uh, and, and we haven't had a security threat of that nature, especially in Europe, uh, North America, or, or most of Asia, uh, involving a great power uh, for many, many decades. And so this is unf an unfortunate game-changing event. It's highlighting the fact that the world is not a secure place. It's, it's insecure and, and potentially getting worse. And therefore, the importance of deterrence, which I feel like Lockheed Martin's product really is deterrence. The value of deterrence to society and to the free market economies of, of the world is as high as it's been since the, the middle of the 20th century, frankly. And therefore, uh, the kinds of capabilities that our company and our, our cohort companies have in aerospace and defense are going to get more important over time and stay that way for a while. And so we feel that uh, the way to really address this, to raise deterrence more quickly than you can otherwise do, mm. is to really accelerate the adoption of digital 
21st century technologies into the defense enterprise to make sure our defense deterrent against war is as strong as it can be, as fast as it can get there. Yeah, and certainly something I know you're very passionate about, 5G.mil and some of these new and emerging technologies that Lockheed's investing right. in. Um, finally, I have to ask you about F-35, big focus for investors. It comprises about a quarter of Lockheed's overall revenue. On the one hand, you have the Pentagon requesting fewer of these stealthy fighter jets in the 2023 budget proposal. On the other, more international uh, allies coming to the table to potentially buy the jet, whether it's a Germany or Finland or now potentially Canada. What does this mean for production and what does it mean for pricing of the F-35? So our goal at Lockheed Martin, and I've discussed this directly with very senior government officials as well, is to maintain a steady production rate because that's the most efficient way for us to deliver aircraft to uh, our allies and to the United States uh, in an effective way at least cost. So we settled on a, a production rate per year of about 156 aircraft over the next few years. Um, we're moving right towards that in 2022. We, sh we will be able to achieve it in 2023 and beyond. And we've got a number of ways to ensure, even with potentially a, sl a slightly smaller U.S. buy, that between uh, unfunded priority lists from our own services, the Marines, Navy, and Air Force have all asked for more uh, aircraft in, in the budget, plus that increase in international demand that you just cited, uh, that we're going to be able to maintain uh, that 156 over the next number of years. Uh, but we, you know, we need to do a little bit of work to get there with our allies and with uh, the Department of Defense. But we're very confident we'll get to keep the 156 production rate and therefore make the mo most efficient uh, outcome for the, for the customer base. Well, Jim, we appreciate your time today for this exclusive interview. Thanks for joining us, Jim Takelet, the chairman, CEO, and president of Lockheed Martin. And Morgan, thanks for bringing that to us. Jim, our, uh, our thanks again. Let's get a quick news alert. Just moments ago in a press scrum aboard Air Force One, the White House said the administration might still appeal yesterday's court ruling on public transportation mask mandates. The White House also still urging people to follow the CDC's advice on planes. There's a quick look across the airline space. United, for instance, up 4% today. American up almost 6%. Pretty much green across the board. And still ahead, the housing market defying gravity as new construction just hit its highest level in over a decade last month, despite surging mortgage rates. What gives? We'll ask the CEO of UMH Properties, which owns manufactured homes in nearly a dozen states. Plus, Twitter is coming off its best day since Elon Musk disclosed his stake in the company. A new player now considering joining the fray. We'll tell you what it may mean for Musk's next move. The exchange is back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday 
and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. As Russia's military releases video of its new offensive in eastern Ukraine, a senior U.S. defense official confirms that some limited Russian operations, including long-range artillery attacks, are underway in the region. NBC News quotes that official as saying the U.S. thinks the moves are preludes to larger offensive operations the Russians plan to conduct. Well, even as Boris Johnson went before Parliament to apologize for what's being called his Partygate scandal, a senior conservative lawmaker says the U.K. prime minister should step down now. Johnson told lawmakers that at the time he didn't see anything wrong with attending a birthday party thrown for him during a COVID lockdown. It did not occur to me then or subsequently that a gathering in the cabinet room just before a vital meeting on COVID strategy could amount to a breach of the rules. I repeat, that was my mistake and I apologize for it unreservedly. Well, it's late in April, but that isn't stopping the snow that is falling on parts of upstate New York. A large storm system has dropped up to 18 inches of snow in some interior areas of the Northeast. Tonight on the news, I'll be in for Shepard Smith. And we'll tell you why the number of spam texts is exploding, with some of them even appearing to come from your own number. That is at 7 o'clock Eastern. Hope you'll join me then. Kelly, back to you. I have gotten those texts, so I want some answers. I have too. Wow. <laughs> A lot lately. Tyler, thanks. I will see you Thank soon. You. Still ahead, Netflix, IBM, Procter & Gamble all set to report. Netflix down 40% so far this year. The near-term options are implying a move of nearly 10% for the stock after it reports. The question is in which direction we have the key things to watch for all three of these earnings next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back to The Exchange. It is all about Netflix this afternoon as the streaming pioneer whose stock has been struggling is set to report. They're not the only ones, though. We will reveal all the key names and metrics to watch. So let's get started with this edition of Earnings Exchange. And first for Netflix, which has traded lower on every earnings report since mid-2018 except for two. Last time, the shares tumbled 22%. Right now, the stock is trading at half of its all-time high around $700. Julia Borston has the story and what to watch for Netflix. And Jeff Kilberg has our trades today. He's CIO of Sanctuary Wealth and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to you both. Julia, kick things off. Well, Kelly, the number that's always in focus for Netflix is its subscriber number. This quarter, the company warned in its last earnings that subscriber growth would slow and it would add about two and a half million subs. Now analysts are wondering if the number could be even lower because the company lost about a million subscribers when it stopped operating in Russia because of its attack on Ukraine. The question really though is even more than the, important than that subscriber number is how many subscribers it forecasts that it will add in the second quarter. The analyst consensus for that is now 2.6 million, but anything, any insight into guidance, into how competitive forces and all these different factors are gonna impact subscribers 
that is what investors are going to be focused on. And Julia, it's sort of suggesting here that two and a half million isn't just, you know, what what consensus might be. It's kind of been a line in the sand for Netflix. Is that right? In other words, people, we know it's slowed. We know there's more competition, but it's kind of like how much, you know, to what degree? Yes, and I think that that's why the second quarter guidance and any guidance that are insight into trends for the year is going to be what's increasingly important here because there is this, this question of how much did stopping operating in Russia really impact things. And of course, that's a unique, unusual situation. But when it comes to the broader trends, there's how much is co competition impacting Netflix? What about inflation? Are consumers pulling back on spending? The fact that Netflix has been cracking down on password sharing, is that hurting or is that Helping. And also remember that Netflix has rolled out a series of price hikes. How does that play into things as well? Then there is also this other factor, Kelly, that we want to keep our, our eye on. And that is what about all these other businesses that Netflix has been pushing into, such as video games and live experiences. They have this Bridgerton experience. It's a ticketed event that goes from between $45 and $85 that people are buying tickets to. But when do those side businesses really start to boost the company's revenue, or are they seeing a notable impact in terms of marketing appeal? Absolutely. All right, Jeff, I turn to you. You say that expectations are absurdly low, but is this chart still broken? I think it is, Kelly. And to Julia's point, absolutely. What really has been feasting upon the stock price are the three points that she brought up. The price increase for the subscription of Netflix. Certainly the passcode breakdown. That has really changed sentiment. But third, it's competition. Look at competition on Amazon or Disney Plus. So that has really moved the price in such a high velocity from nearly $700 last Thanksgiving to $350. So expectations are absurdly low. However, we have to keep in fact, and the reason I'm not buying it yet is I do want to see this turnaround. I don't want to catch this fall night, but they have 220 million subscribers globally. They're 35% of all the streaming out there. So they still are the paramount leader, but right now they have to get things under control. The volatility in the stock, it is a broken chart to your point. So I want to see a positive earnings, see some tranquility in the name, and I will be a buyer, but I have to see some type of turnaround because it's been an absolute free fall. All right. We'll see if that begins this afternoon or not. As Jeff, stay right there. Julia, thanks. And we'll turn our attention to IBM, whose shares have been flat over the past year. And the street really looking at how quickly Big Blue can grow that software business. See Modi has the story and maybe some catalysts that could jumpstart the stock, Seema. Well, no Bridgerton experience here, Kelly, but any signs of companies scaling back their IT budgets, that will be a key focus for investors when IBM reports after the bell. There are a lot of buzzwords surrounding this company that has been in turnaround mode for many years. Digital transformation, AI, cybersecurity following its Red Hat acquisition. Software will be the key focal point. It makes up roughly 40% of total revenue. And the transition into a more cloud-centric company under CEO Arvind Krishna, he's made that a big priority since becoming CEO Morgan Stanley is also watching for any potential pause in consulting deals in Europe due to the Russia-Ukraine crisis. Analysts say IBM has roughly 30 percent revenue exposure to the broader EMEA region. The stock is flat this year, Kelly, but compared to Meta, which is down 28 percent, it's done uh, far better than most technology names. Part of that has to do, according to analysts, is its dividend of over 5 percent. Wow. All right. Seema, thank you. Jeff. This is a strange world we're living in. You're kind of shrugging off Netflix, not buying, but, you know, you seem like you're beyond excited about IBM here. 
<laughs> You're right, Callie. And the queue up there, Justin Timberlake bringing sexy back. Boring <laughs> is sexy. And if you look at IBM, it's an essential name. It's essential to the U.S. economy. One of the portfolios that I manage is the Essential 40. That's where IBM lives. And your absolute point, you have seen this restructuring. Seema hit the nail on the head. This restructuring, this focus on this hybrid cloud, very different than the public cloud, which obviously Amazon and Microsoft live in. But the hybrid cloud, which allows for private cloud as well as public cloud, they're one of the top cloud players these days. And it's really hard to imagine that they just happen to have this restructuring. So there's a lot going on. They also are a little bit of a, of a private equity fund. They're committed to $20 billion in mergers and acquisitions through 2024. So the Red Hat acquisition, that's not going to slow them down. Look for them to continue to grow that software sector. And that's where they're having high team digit returns. So this is a really kind of sexy name, despite it's been so boring for so long, Kelly. <laughs> All right. One of your top picks, one of Barron's top picks for 2022. And the shares right. are rallying into that report. Seema, again, we appreciate it. And finally, we close out with Procter & Gamble reporting tomorrow morning as the stock remains just a couple percentage points off its all-time high. It's all about supply chain and pricing power. Dom Chu has the story. Dom? Absolutely, Kelly. So P&G is probably one of the most well-known and closely followed reports in the sector for consumer staples. Also, it gets so much more attention for a non-tech media company type because its consumer brand portfolio touches so many different parts of the global consumer. So let's get the housekeeping details out of the way first. The consensus estimate for earnings is going to be $1.29 per share. Revenues roughly $18.7 billion. But this is going to be very much to your point, Kelly, about the management commentary. It's been working hard. P&G has to increase productivity, contain costs in this, yes, inflationary environment. But what we've seen over the last several months and quarters is that customers and users will continue to pay up for trusted brands, indicating that companies like P&G have that so-called pricing power, right? The ability to pass those costs along to end users to help preserve their profit margins. But how long will those inflationary pressures last? That's what we want to hear from P&G. We'll see if they say anything about that during the call. As for, Kelly, what kind of price action to expect? The options market right now is pricing in roughly a 2.6% move in that stock up or down. For context, over the last eight quarters, the average absolute move for P&G has been up or down roughly 1.8%. So a slightly more volatile post-earnings trade expected yeah. for P&G this time around. I was going to say that's about as exciting as 2.6%. Whoo, Jeff Kilberg, I don't I make you want to call which way it's going to go, but why have you been buying J&J &J instead of P&G here? Well, I look at the market leadership that J&J has provided, but I'm not going to discount the fact that P&G on a year-to-date, on a one-year and a three-year metric, has outperformed the S&P 500. I look at Johnson & Johnson as a larger market cap, a little more diversified. So that's where we have been. However, Kelly, I am interested in P&G if it can pull back to $150. Right now, trading at $158, that's not a big pullback. I know the implied vol that Dom talked about may not get us there today. But if you look at P&G, certainly it is a great insight to what the global inflation or the impact of global inflation really is. They are a consumer staples giant, but at the end of the day, we have to see, to Dom's point, how they pass along that pricing power, and inherently, do they have the pricing power that Johnson & Johnson have? So that will be determined, but right now, I'm interested in P&G. 
This is another boring stock, but again, in 2022, boring has become sexy, bottom line. So P&G is on the radar, but have not pulled the trigger yeah. yet, Kelly. I mean, listen, outperforming like you just described, that'll get anybody's attention these days. We'll That's leave right. it there. Jeff Kilberg, thank you. Dom Chu, thank you very much as well. And that does it for this edition of Earnings Exchange. Coming up, the mortgage payment for the typical home has increased by $250 a month since March. What that means for the affordable housing market and for housing overall. And during April, we're celebrating financial literacy and featuring some of our CNBC contributors. Here's Tim Seymour. Young people in this country are our most valuable assets. This is my daughter, Skye. And as a parent and an investor, teaching her how to plan for her financial future and set goals, it's about instilling a value set. And it's about helping her become independent and charting her own path in the world. Welcome back, everybody. I'm calling this a Mike Santoli day because we have super strong stock markets despite really aggressive upward moves in interest rates. And then NASDAQ is leading the way. It's up one and two thirds of a percent or 220 points right now. Look at the Dow up 369 and that's 100 points off the session high. Coming up, we're also seeing strength in housing starts new home construction last month just beat estimates. Rising rates might be raising some red flags future on, though. We will have that next. We're going to talk to the CEO of UMH Properties, which develops manufactured housing communities. His view on the ground, what is happening right now. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. New data shows home building actually rose last month despite that spike in mortgage rates to a 10-year high. Housing starts are up three-tenths of a percent, beat estimates, with inventory at historic lows and a record backlog of permits approved for construction. Could builders be insulated here? UMH Properties builds and operates communities of pre-manufactured homes. The stock down 11% to kick things off this year. CEO Sam Landy joins me now. Sam, it's good to see you again. Welcome. Thank you for having me. What do you think is going to happen with demand here? Well, demand for affordable housing, our product, uh, is substantial. There's a you know giant gap uh, between the number of people who need quality, affordable housing and the supply, and that's not improving. UMH uh, has communities with vacant sites. We build additional communities. We have 97% occupancy of our rental homes, and we try to add 800 new rental homes per year, and we see demand significant so that we're trying to find out how we can build more communities and acquire more communities. Are your are people typically just renters, or are they affected by mortgage rates here? Uh, we sell homes and rent homes, and historically in manufactured housing, uh, there was a significant difference between the interest rate people paid to borrow money to buy a manufactured home versus a mortgage. Our product was significantly more expensive on the lending side. But UMH created a relationship with Fannie Mae that resulted uh, in Fannie Mae recognizing the duty to serve and reducing interest costs. So we obtained a 2.62% mortgage on properties. Wow. And we obtained direct financing on rental homes. And this has led to us being able to finance manufactured homes that we sell for 4.99% which for the first time in history is lower than mortgage rates. Yeah, that's quite a turn of events. I don't know if it can stay down at that level, but I guess the, the point being, 
5% is something your uh, buyer has been able to afford. So maybe the 5% mortgage rate isn't the end of the world for them. Do you think it's going to send people at the margin towards your properties who now feel like they can't afford uh, traditional housing inventory? And that's been the history of it back in the 70s when interest rates went, you know, way, way up high. Manufactured home shipments hit their record high of 300,000 shipments per year. People need a place to live. They need a quality place to live. And the rising in, rising mortgage rates magnifies the difference between the cost of our product and the cost of site-built housing so that, you know, there's more of a need for our product. Last question, are rents plateauing at all? Since some of your communities are a little bit further out, is the rise in gas prices plus the end of the pandemic leading to some deterioration in demand for those units at all? Now, demand's, you know, incredibly strong. We're, we're hoping there's a way for the people who build warehouses and factories to recognize they should take the vacant land near their properties and zone it for manufactured housing. Uh, so people have to drive less distance to get to quality, affordable housing. But again, the demand, you know, the baby boomers, the millennials, uh, they all need a quality, affordable house to live in. And that's what we provide at very reasonable prices. Well, and you've always got some intriguing ideas. Sam, thanks for joining us and providing an update. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Sam Landy is the CEO of UMH. Up next, Twitter may soon find itself with a line of suitors after Elon Musk expressed, expressed interest in buying the company. Who could be stepping up to the plate? That's next. Welcome back, everybody. Another twist in the Twitter saga. Apollo reportedly considering making a move in the potential buyout. Leslie Picker joins us now with all the details. Leslie? Hey, Kelly, yeah, something tells me this is not going to be the last twist in this Twitter saga, but this is really on par for, uh, for in the course of buyouts. An asset like Twitter becomes, quote, in play, meaning potential acquirers start informally circling private equity firm surfaces, potential bidders, and those who finance such offers start waving their hands to get in on all the action. They're talking with the consultants and the bankers and Enter private credit funds. Yes, you may know Apollo for its buyouts, most recently takeovers of companies like Yahoo and Michaels, but Apollo has a massive credit arm as well, comprising more than $350 billion in assets. That's about 70% of the firm's total $500 billion in AUM. Its credit arm is used to help other private equity firms finance their takeovers. Apollo has partnered with tech buyout shop Toma Bravo in the past, which is a firm rumored to be considering a bid for Twitter, although I haven't independently confirmed how serious they actually are. I'm told Apollo could also participate in some sort of preferred equity financing or pipe as well. But again, all of this very, very early stage exploratory at this point in time. Now, a source tells me Apollo is not interested, this is an important clarification, not interested in buying Twitter, but like anyone in the financing business is seeking whether they can provide debt or equity to help someone else, be it Elon Musk or another private equity firm, buy Twitter. Kelly? Because the beauty of Twitter is I see people posting their IRR models of how lucrative a buyout could be. So, okay, Apollo might get involved, Leslie. But would they be providing financing for a rival bid to Musk? Would they potentially partner with Musk, or is that ruled out? I don't know what you make of the New York Post reporting this afternoon that Musk may be able to put up, I don't know, $10 billion of cash or something. 
and start his tender offer in about 10 days time is what the post is reporting. But it, at this point in time, my source tells me it could be either side. It could be the Musk side helping them line up financing, or it could be a private equity firm helping them line up financing. At this point in time, you can pretty much bet that the vast majority of these larger uh, private credit funds are looking to see whether they can and want to be a part of some sort of financing opportunity here, because this is the largest buyout that we've seen in years. Wow, that's a great point. Great reminder. Lost in everything else going on with the story. Leslie, thank you. We appreciate it. <laughs> Leslie Picker. And that does it for The Exchange this afternoon. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.